I'm speaking on behalf of, of all the pastors, because uh, I'm the only one with a microphone right now, but um, I, I just want to let you guys know how thankful we are for you all, for you all, and um, yeah, this, uh, the gifts that you guys gave us, the appreciation that you guys are showing us, uh, yeah, it's, it's beyond anything that we, we could have ever expected, and we're so grateful to, to you for that. Uh, we're just so humbled that, that uh, we could be the recipients of your love in, in, this, in this way, and so we're just so thankful to you for that. So thank you all uh, for uh, contributing and, and for sacrificing for us in that way. We, we love you so much. Um, well, if this is your first time or you just haven't been here in a while, we are in the middle of a study called Why We Believe. And it is a study that looks at the doctrinal statement of the church and it examines why we believe the things that we say we believe. Um, so far, we've covered uh, the Word of God. We've covered um, just the inerrancy of the scriptures. We've covered the Trinity. We've covered the person and work of Jesus Christ. And today we turn our attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So um, because the person and work of the Holy Spirit, um, there, there's just so many moving pieces and, and the scriptures are scattered all over, uh, all over the Bible. Uh, we, we're not working out of one particular text tonight. We're going to be bouncing around. So um, yeah, it's kind of like Sunday school with a sword drill all over again. So, uh, but I'll have the text up on the screen for you every now and then, so uh, you don't have to worry too much about that. But uh, before we jump in, we're, we're going to turn our attention first to John 14, and we're going to read the, the passage there, and then we'll pray. John 14, verse 16. The Word of God reads this. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we direct our attention to the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us become more familiar with him so that our worship may be deepened and so that you can be glorified as we understand you in all of your perfections as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we pray uh, that you would glorify yourself this evening as we study your word. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. 
SFBC's doctrinal statement on the Holy Spirit reads this. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and that he is the supernatural agent in regeneration, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling and sealing them unto the day of redemption. We believe that he is the divine teacher who guides believers into all truths. We believe that it is the privilege and responsibility of every believer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is an essential doctrine for us to understand because the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. And because it is through him that we have the very Bible that we study in order to inform our belief in God. Through the Holy, though the Holy Spirit is a vitally important person to know and to understand, he is also the most misunderstood and neglected member of the Trinity since the passages which describe him are spread out and references to him can at times be unclear. And as a result, a decent number of false teachings have arisen, leading to much confusion in the universal church. Like our study of the person and work of Jesus Christ last week, a study of the Holy Spirit requires much more time than we have, this, uh, we have for this evening. But we're going to try and study as much of the Holy Spirit as we can tonight. Even though we will begin our study in the book of John, we will be looking at various texts to get a better picture of who the Holy Spirit is as God has revealed him in the scriptures. And so we'll do that briefly uh, by examining what the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit's person and the Holy Spirit's work. And first, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit's person, okay? the Holy Spirit's person. And the first aspect of his person that we'll look at is the fact that he is God. Now, in verse 16 of, chapter, of John 14, Jesus says that he will ask the Father, and the Father will give believers another helper, that he may be with you forever. And verse 17 identifies the helper as the spirit of truth. There are some out there who seek to deny the Holy Spirit his personhood and his equality with God the Father and God the Son, simply because of the fact that he is described as helper. And what their argument is, is that the Holy Spirit is, he's not really a person, he's just an impersonal force or a power that proceeds from God. However, the way that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit here in John 14 makes it clear that he is referring to the Holy Spirit as a person, not an impersonal force. For the actions that the Holy Spirit takes, abiding with the disciples in verse 17, teaching the disciples and helping them to remember all that Jesus taught them in verse 26, they're not actions that you ascribe to an impersonal force, but to a person who acts. Additionally, the Greek word for another, alos, it can be translated as another of the same kind. And it's distinct from the other word for another, which is heteros. That's the prefix in front of the word heterosexual, heterosexual, which highlights a qualitative difference in the things being compared. By calling the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, another helper, or alos paraclete, Jesus makes a definitive statement that tells us that the Holy Spirit who is coming is different from the helper they presently have with them, which is, who is? Jesus, right? But they are qualitatively the same. They are distinct, but they are the same. 
They share the same nature. Just as Jesus is God, so is God the Holy Spirit God. In Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to make it appear that they were exceedingly generous before the rest of the congregation, they have an issue with Peter. Uh, When we look at verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, when Ananias presents uh, the, the proceeds from the sale of his land, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, we're very familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We know that they lied about the sale of their land. And because of their lie, they died. But it wasn't necessarily just because they lied that they died. Right? That's how we teach it in Sunday school. But that's not really what it is. Right? Because if it was just lying, we would all die because we all lie. But the big issue here is highlighted in what Peter says. If Ananias and Sapphira merely lied to Peter, their lie, while still sin, would not be that big of an issue. Because we lie to one another all the time. But Peter, he recognizes that their sin is not just against him. It's not just against the church. But it is directly against God. Because they were trying to steal his glory. They were trying to take the glory that God was getting as the church was gathering together and sharing everything with one another and and getting all the attention from the people because of all the good work that was happening there. They were trying to tap into that glory, tap into that fame to show themselves worthy of something, to show themselves glorious. And so as they were trying to steal his glory, God reacts. Now, when you look specifically at what Peter says in verse 3 and 4, he says, he asks Ananias why he lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says, You've not lied to men, but to God. Two things here. You can't, first, you cannot lie to an impersonal force or power. Right? You cannot lie to an impersonal force or power. An impersonal force or power by, is by its nature impersonal. It's not a person. Right? It's just a thing. I cannot lie to my iPhone. It's just a thing. I know Siri pretends to be a person, but she's not even though we use that prefix, right? It's just a thing. You can only lie to a being that possesses an intellect and a will because you are telling them a falsehood. Secondly, notice that Peter, he says that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says Ananias lied to God. Peter puts the Holy Spirit on the same level as God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. And this can only make sense if the Holy Spirit is God, because God will not share his glory with another, right? Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. If that is true, if God will not even allow himself to be represented by an idol, then the Holy Spirit who's being placed on the same plane with, uh, with God by Peter, must also be God. 
And if the Holy Spirit is not merely a representative of God, but is God himself, then sinning against him by lying to him is a big deal. And God, he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira by requiring their lies for their attempt to steal his glory. Because the early church and the generations which succeeded it needed to know that the church was about him and his glory, not about them. It was about him. And this was a message God needed to send to the early church and to those observing the church to protect it and to show the world that God was behind the church, that it was his power that gave them authority. It was his power that gave them any sort of relevance. The message was received, and that's evidenced from, from Acts 5, 13 to 16, as many who saw Ananias and Sapphira die because of their, their attempt to steal glory, they fearfully stayed away from the church out of respect, right? out of respect. It says, but none of the rest dare to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. There was a respect that they had for the church because they understood you don't mess with the church because God's behind that. And if God's behind it, we must respect the church. And so there were some who, being fearful, they just kept their distance. But there were many more, it says, who believed. Verse 14 says, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Even though God displayed his jealousy for his own glory by killing Ananias and Sapphira when they tried to glory steal, the church was still held in high esteem. And there were still many people who said, you know what, I still want to believe. I don't care if God is scary. I love him. I want to respect him. I want to honor him. And so I will still believe. And while God has not specifically acted like that again in recent history, even though there are many false teachers who have corrupted his word, made it about themselves, this warning is sufficient. God currently displays his patience towards all who sin against him in all sorts of ways, including glory stealing. But there will be an accounting for these sins eventually because their sin is against him. Now, God's personhood is not only demonstrated in his deity, but it is also demonstrated in his emotions. That's point B. He has emotions. Right? He, is, uh, he is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit has emotions. Now, while it is spread out in the scriptures, the Bible clearly teaches that the Holy Spirit has emotions. Well, what are these emotions that the Holy Spirit has? And he's described as having the following emotions— this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some of the easier ones that I could find. The first emotion that he has, the, that he expresses, is joy. Joy. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says this, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he experiences joy, especially when believers do what honors God. He also experiences joy when sinners repent and believe in God. And the Holy Spirit also, he fills us with joy. He gives us joy so that even when we experience trying circumstances, we will still respond joyfully. 
I mean, if you think about it too, Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit, right, the fruit that comes from the Spirit is love, joy, and then so on and so forth. Right? Joy is one of these emotions that he allows for us to feel, to experience. These are the things that will come out if we truly believe in him. When James tells believers that they are to count it all joy when they encounter various trials, that joy is couched in a trust that God is doing something in their suffering. That joy, that trust is the joy that the Holy Spirit enables us to experience because he himself knows true joy as he is the source of true joy. And you could even say he is the object of true joy. And so joy is an emotion that the Holy Spirit experiences and he gives to us. Another emotion that he experiences is offense. Offense. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 29, it says this, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. In this context, the author of Hebrews was writing about those who have known the truth of the scriptures. They've lived according to it for a time, and then they've decided to completely reject the truth. This is not talking about someone who was a professing believer, walked away for a short time, and then came back to the faith. The rejection that is being depicted here is a final rejection of the gospel by someone who was a professing believer in Jesus Christ. Someone who claimed to love the Lord, who did great works for the Lord. They went on missions trips. They went to inner city missions they served on the worship team. They were faithful in attending every single Friday night. Faithful every Sunday. And after tasting the goodness of God, rejects the faith and says, there is no God. That is the person who is in view here in Hebrews 10, 29. The one who has tasted and seen the goodness of God and then walks away saying, no, there is no God. And this is similar to the issue that many of us are familiar with, the issue of the unpardonable sin. In Mark 3, 28, 29, Jesus says that those who observed his miracles and attributed his works to Satan will not be forgiven of their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, for blaspheming the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. The issue of blasphemy here is an offense, an insult, an attack on the honor of the Holy Spirit, because what the scribes were saying was that Jesus' power was a demonic power, a wicked and evil power. That's why he was able to drive out the demons. However, the power behind Jesus' miracles was not the devil. It was not an evil and wicked power. Rather, it was the Holy Spirit's power, the third member of the Trinity. 
God himself was being insulted and called the devil, which is why this sin was unpardonable for those who were witnessing the power of God firsthand. His honor was besmirched. His glory was despised. His deity rejected. The Holy Spirit can experience offense and insult. And if there are some of you out there who are wondering whether you've committed the unpardonable sin and you're in danger of not having your sin forgiven forever, well, the context is quite clear. The only people who are in danger of committing the unpardonable sins are the ones who were right there in front of Jesus, those scribes who saw Jesus do those miraculous works through the Holy Spirit, and they said, no, Jesus, your power is not of the Holy Spirit. Your power is not of God. Your power is of the devil. John MacArthur likes to say that if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you've probably not committed it because you wouldn't care. You would love your sin and you wouldn't care. That leads us to the next emotion that the Holy Spirit experiences. He can experience grief. Isaiah 63.10 says this, But they, in reference to Israel, rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Ephesians 4.30 has the warning for us. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit, who empowers us to do what is right, to love God when our natural response is to do evil, to rebel against him, he is grieved when we choose to sin. He has shown us what is right. He has enabled us, empowered us to be able to do what is right. He has shown us that God is much better than sin. It is so much superior to sin. When we sin against him, after he's revealed all those things to us, after he's enabled us to not sin, he's grieved when we say, eh, sin is better than God. Sin is better than obedience. Sin is better in God's glory. The Holy Spirit is grieved, brothers and sisters, when we choose to love our sin, to love ourselves more than we love God. Can you imagine that? Showing someone the way, empowering them to do what they need to do, and they still reject you to your face, in your presence, thinking, ah, He'll forgive me anyway. I'm alone right now. No one sees this. You've forgotten that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's a grievous thing to sin because it grieves the Holy Spirit. And yet, he still loves us, doesn't he? He still loves us. That's the next emotion, love. Romans 5, 5 says this. And hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul tells us here in Romans 5 that it is through the Holy Spirit that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. We experience his love because of the Holy Spirit pouring it out into our hearts. The eternal love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for one another, that they share in one another, is given to us to experience through the Holy Spirit. He has a love for us and a desire for us to be made like Christ. The Holy Spirit, he's not just some impersonal force or power. He's a person, a member of the Godhead. He's God. He has emotions, and he loves us. And as we look at these emotions that the Holy Spirit has, we realize he is so much more than what we've often given him credit for. But not only is he God, not only does he experience emotions, but he also has a will. Number, letter C, he has a will. What is the Holy Spirit's will? Well, he contends with sinners. Genesis 6.3 says this. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. What God is pointing out there in the early parts of creation as he watches the world live in their sin, is that the reason why they're still alive is because he's patient with them. He's revealed to them that they are sinners, that they do need to repent. That's why Noah knew that he needed to repent. That's why Noah was a righteous man compared to those around him. He knew that he needed to repent. And God, at that, at that time, was being patient with man. And, that, that, and you can even see how, how far that patience went because back then, the lifespan was 120 years. That's a lot of patience, isn't it? 120 years of open rebellion to the Lord. And yet he was patient. That was just the minimum lifespan. God was patient, but he still contended with sinners. In Acts 7, 51, Stephen, he says to the Jews who are arguing with him, they have always resisted the Holy Spirit just as their fathers did. And what these two passages highlight to us is the fact that the Holy Spirit is not passive in the way that he deals with us. He does not just wait for us indefinitely, hoping that we will eventually do what he says. He clearly has a will, a desire for us to do a certain thing. He wants for us to repent. He wants for us to return to the Lord. And while he does not always make us bear the consequences of resisting his will right away, in this, in this, in this, um, in this life, there is a limit to that merciful patience that he shows us. Another aspect of his will is the fact that the Holy Spirit directs. Acts 16, 
6 to 7. And where we find ourselves in Acts 16, 6 to 7 is Paul on the second missionary journey. He was going around the churches after the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And in Acts 15, as you remember, they came, the apostles came to the realization that the Gentiles have a place in the people of God. And they don't have to convert to Judaism in order to be a part of the people of God. They could be saved as they were, as they are, as Gentiles. Because it's by grace that you're saved. And in Acts 16, Paul's on his missionary journey. He's going around strengthening the churches, spreading the good news. And he wants to go to Asia. And what we see is he starts to run into difficulty. Right? All this success. He beats the false teachers, and, or the Judaizers in Acts 15. He starts strengthening the churches and he's encouraged all the success, and then suddenly he stops, and he can't go where he wants to go. He runs into difficulty. He wants to go to Asia, but for whatever reason, he couldn't go. What Luke records is that when Paul was being turned away from where he wanted to go, he says that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul to go into Asia. And then later he says that the Holy Spirit did not permit him to go into Asia. This is not a racist act by the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit had plans for Paul to go to someplace called Philippi first. You know that place. That's where we get the book of Philippians. And it's because Paul listened to the Spirit that we eventually get that book of Philippians. Right? Without the Spirit saying, no, you can't go to Asia no, not here, not there, not here, not there. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Go to, go to Philippi. Right? Without that, we don't get the book of Philippians. We don't learn about humility. We don't learn about joy. There was a purpose in that. He wanted Paul to see that, which is why he guided Paul along the way, which is why he told Paul at some points, no, 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 no. For us, when we think about what God's will is for our lives, the one who leads us, guides us, and directs us is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you will have unprecedented success like Paul, where no matter what you do, even if you mess up, God saves you. You can't go wrong because God continues to be with you and he continues to bless you. But there will be points where he will say, no, no. No, not yet. Wait. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who guides. He guided Paul to exactly the right place at exactly the right time to accomplish God's purposes for the church. And in our lives, he does the same. We can't see it. You can't always trace the hand of God to know where he's leading you. Right? We can't even look at the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters and say, oh, well, if God made his life go in this trajectory and my life is kind of going in that tra trajectory, then, oh, I must be in line for success soon. Right? It's all different. You know that. You look at, we compare lives, right? We shouldn't, but we do. We compare lives. And we know that what works for one person doesn't always work for the next. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides and directs. He will guide you and he will direct you to where he wants you to go, when he wants you to go. 
We have to trust in him. We have to look to him for that. Right? But he has a will. He also distributes spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says this, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Paul's talking about the body. And he's talking about how the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ, within the church, distributes gifts just as he wills. Not everyone has the same gift. Right? Not everyone can lead worship. Not everyone can do AV. Not everyone can preach or teach. Not everyone has the gift of encouragement. Or even for, for some of us, we're not as skilled in evangelism. We all understand that the Holy Spirit gives us different gifts for us to serve the church. And the distribution of these gifts are varied. And he gives certain people certain abilities. And he brings them into the church so that together, as the body, we can serve the body and cause the entire church to function better together because we are part of one body. I mean, you guys have heard this analogy before. The reason why the church is, is, is described as the body is because it's kind of like our, our physical bodies. You don't want your fingers to see things, right? You want your eyes to see things. And if your fingers decide to rebel against you and say, no, I don't want to be fingers. I don't want to hold things. I just want to see things. I'm going to look at things. Well, then you don't have useful fingers, do you? Just be wandering around trying to use your feet while your, eye, while your hands just do whatever. We all have certain gifts, right? And God has purposely given us the gifts that we're good at for a reason. And so that's why we must get together to serve, uh, to serve the body. And now, while we understand that we, that we all have certain strengths and giftedness, I, don't, I do also want to quickly point out that giftedness or a lack thereof in certain areas where there are commands does not mean that we cannot serve in that way. For example, you know, I've heard it said from people that I am not gifted in the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to do any evangelism. I'm going to let the evangelists do it. I'm going to bring my friend to church, and I'm going to have them come to, come to church, listen to the message, and then I'm going to bring my friend up to Pastor Henry. I'm going to say, Pastor Henry, here's my friend. Evangelize to him, please. And of course, Pastor Henry, being the gracious and loving man that he is, will say, of course. Right? He will do that because... He wants to evangelize. He wants to share the gospel with that person. But even if you might not be the most gifted, even if you might not know everything, you have something that Pastor Henry does not with the person that you bring to church. You have a relationship. You have a relationship. They have been able to observe your life the way that Christ comes in and impacts your life. Hopefully, they can see that there is a difference in your life because of Christ. That your Christianity isn't just something that you demonstrate by not going out on Fridays, by showing up on Sunday mornings. Hopefully, that does not define the extent of your Christianity. And hopefully, they can see that. And in and in that, right, 
when they see your lives, that's a window into what Christ can do in a life, that what the power of Christ can do in a life. And so just because you're not gifted in it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Doesn't mean that you can't do it. You know, I've heard some people even say, I'm not good at teaching, so I'm not going to teach. Oh boy, brothers and sisters, you are going to be in trouble if, you, if the Lord allows for you to get married and you have children. Because if you say, I'm not a teacher, I'm not going to teach, and you have children, what are you going to do? Just let them run, run amok? No. You got to teach them. And you got to teach them the word. So even though there are things that we might not necessarily be gifted in, if we've been commanded to do them by God, we have no excuse, brothers and sisters. We have no excuse. So we have seen that the Holy Spirit shares in the deity of God the Father and God the Son, that he has emotions and that he has a will. What should we do with this understanding of the Holy Spirit's person? Well, as we understand who the Spirit, Holy Spirit is, that he is a distinct person in the Trinity, he's not an impersonal force, we need to consider how we honor him. Do we do what pleases him? Or do we mistakenly think that because of Christ's forgiveness, it doesn't really matter if we grieve the Holy Spirit in our disobedience? If the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us and guides us, those of us who are Christians, we should take prayer seriously too. When it, seems, when it comes to seeing how God will direct us in our lives. Right? Instead of looking at the decisions that we have in our lives and and considering them from merely a logical and financial standpoint, we should be driven to pray for wisdom and direction for our decisions. And I'm not saying that it's not important to talk with other people and to get their opinions because God can use them and their wisdom to show us where he wants us to go. But we all have to remember that the first person we should turn to is God the Holy Spirit, to pray to him, to show, to show us his will to show us where God the Father would want us to go. And I'm guilty of this too, okay? But we must truly pray. Not just say, you know what? I need to pray about that. And then you just think about the logical and financial implications, and then you just go with those decisions, okay? We actually have to pray about those things, okay? You know, if someone asks you out, don't just say, oh, yeah, I'll pray about it, I'll think about it, and then you just go home and think about how ugly they are, and you're just like, nah, I don't want to. We actually have to pray. As we consider how the Holy Spirit's person can have an effect on our personal lives, let us now turn our attention to the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit's work. What are the works of the Holy Spirit, and why must we understand them? Some of the works that the Holy Spirit is involved with are the following. Okay, this is some. Okay, This is not exhaustive. So don't kill me if I don't listen well. Creation, okay, Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. You know, when James led us in singing Holy Spirit, I almost kind of wanted to say, you know what, I'm done. It's all up there in that song. We don't have to sing anymore. The breath of God, creation, it's all there. We rightly said last week that it was through Jesus that all of creation was made. It can also be said that the Holy Spirit was involved with creation as well. 
And that reminds us that all three members of the Trinity were involved in the process of creation. God the Father gave the command. God the Son did the act of creation. And God the Holy Spirit was present imparting life to animals and to humans alike. In Job 33, 4, Job's friend Elihu, he's the righteous one. He's the one who never gets punished, never gets scolded. He recognizes that the Holy Spirit has a part in the creation of mankind and in giving all of man life. All members of the Trinity are active in the, process, in, in the act of creation in the process of creation. And it is because of God's personal work in creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we all have our being. And we can be thankful for the Holy Spirit because it is through Him that we have our physical life. Through Him that we have our physical life. Moving on, another one of His works is revelation slash inspiration. Whenever we talk about how God has revealed himself to us through his word, we can never have that discussion without thinking about the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, we're reminded that all scripture is inspired by God. Another way to think about that is that it is God-breathed. It comes out of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who provides the human author's of Scripture with the inspiration to write what God wants them to write, which is evident in the next Scripture passage, 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Peter writes this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Why is this verse so important for us to consider? It's because it reminds us that the Bible, while written by human authors, was not something that these human authors just made up. Because some people may claim that the Bible is a human book in the sense that men wrote words that belong in that book. And that is true. That is true. But it is so much more than just a human book. A book that was written by men who decided to write. Because Peter tells us that these men who wrote the scriptures, they didn't do so just because they felt like it. The words that these men wrote, they were given to them by the Holy Spirit. He used their personalities, their writing styles, their life experiences, their insights to communicate God's message to the rest of mankind. And as a result, since these words that we have in our Bibles are, in fact, the living word of God given to us in the pages of Scripture, we must be faithful to properly study the scriptures, to mine it for the truths that God intended for us to learn and to live by for this life. You have to mine it, and you have to mine it all. If this is a treasure trove, would you be content with just skimming off the surface? Or are you going to dig and dig and dig and get all that you can? the fact that this is God's living word and the fact that we must mine it properly mining it 
for all the truths that God wants for us to learn and live by explains why God's churches, not just this church, but all churches that are truly God's, it explains why they should not bow down to the culture in an effort to be relevant. Because when churches forget, when they decide that they're going to bow down to the culture so that they can be relevant, what they forget is that the issue with relevancy is not whether or not they're culturally relevant or accepted. The issue with relevancy and acceptance is, are you relevant to God? Are you acceptable before God? Who cares about the culture? Who cares about what they say and what they tell you to say? Granted, we live in the culture. We cannot, de- we cannot deny that fact. Right? But relevance, when God talks about relevance, he's not talking about how we relate to the culture. He's talking about how do you relate to me? The issue with relevancy is not whether we can conform our message to make it more palatable for other people to accept. The issue with relevancy is do we have what God's word says right? And do we live by it? And do we try and save these people who are running as fast as they can towards hell by pursuing them with the love, with the love that God has for them so that they won't go to hell? If God can speak clearly and he does not have any communication issues, then we must cling to the truth that God has revealed and intended for us to know and live by, no matter what the culture tries to shame us into believing or accepting by throwing out the proper interpretation of the scriptures under the banner of being woker than thou. The Holy Spirit did not communicate what God wants us to know and live by just so that we could be ashamed of the very truths that he wanted us to live by. The Christian's education in who God is does not stop in the intellect. It progresses to our actions. It progresses to our actions. It shows up in our lives. That leads us to the next work of the Holy Spirit, which is conviction conviction. John 16, verse 7. Jesus tells his disciples, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. One of the purposes of the Holy Spirit coming into the world after Jesus ascended into heaven, which, by the way, makes it necessary for Jesus to have actually died, to have actually risen from the dead, and to actually ascend into heaven, is so that the Holy Spirit could come into the world to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is through the Holy Spirit that the world knows what truth is. 
When people who are not believers feel shame when they are personally responsible for sin, that is the Holy Spirit prodding their conscience, helping them realize that what they have done is wrong before holy God. In our culture today, we try and hide shame. We try and hide guilt. We say to people who feel guilty and, and feel ashamed that they don't deserve to feel guilty or to feel shame. That if they feel guilty or shame, that they should just start thinking positive thoughts. They need more positive influences in their lives. There are instances where there is misplaced guilt and shame. When you feel guilt and shame for something that you are not responsible for, that is not at all what I am talking about. If you feel guilt or shame for something that you are not responsible for, you don't need to feel guilt or shame. And this is what we have to consider. If I feel guilt and shame, why do I feel guilt and shame? Have I actually done something that makes me guilty and that I should be ashamed of? Because if there is, then I need to repent of that. I need to own up to that because I did it. Because I did it. The Holy Spirit, he prods at our conscience to help us realize that we must repent of our sins. And if we ignore that, thinking that, no, I ought not to feel guilty or shame when we should, then we're ignoring what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. He convicts the world of righteousness. He shows us that righteousness is real. It's out there. And it's only attainable through Jesus. And as we will soon see, it is through the Holy Spirit's work that we are able to believe in him, to repent of our sins, and receive his righteousness. Should the world ignore what the Holy Spirit has revealed, they know, because of what the Holy Spirit has revealed, that there will be judgment. There will be an accounting for the wrongs that they have done. Now, this next thought doesn't come from the scriptures. But isn't it interesting that everyone, every culture in the world has some concept of an accounting for the deeds done in life? Every single culture has a concept of that. Why do you suppose that is? From a sociological standpoint, some would probably suppose that the idea that there's an accounting for deeds done in life, whether it be in the afterlife or the next life or reincarnation, whatever it might be, must happen in order to give people comfort when they witness injustices in the world, when they're trying to make sense of why wicked people prosper and good people suffer. Or perhaps it's a social deterrent, telling people that they must act rightly unless they want to bear the consequences for it. That's from a sociological standpoint. From a theological standpoint, the reason why everyone has an accounting or has, the, has a concept for an accounting for one's deeds is because of the Holy Spirit. He has placed eternity in the heart of every man. 
so that we know that there is a God. He convicts us of sin so that we know that we've done wrong. And that we must find a way to become right with that God. Lest there be judgment. Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin. He shows us the way to righteousness and the way to a repair relationship with God so you aren't in danger of that judgment anymore. And isn't it amazing that it is through God's very patience with those who are unbelievers that we do not simply fall into the fires of hell once we commit sin. It is God's very own hand that stays us from his wrath. And when he does save us, he's not saving you from the devil. Get that out of your minds. He's not saving you from the devil. God is saving you from God because he is rightly angry at you for your rebellion. Yet, he's patient. He's merciful. He wants for you to repent. He doesn't deal with you as you are, as he ought to because he wants to give you that chance to repent. If you're here tonight and you know that you're guilty of sin, that you do not believe in Jesus, that, that you don't currently believe in Jesus Christ and you want forgiveness of sins, you want to be made right with God, I urge you, I beg you to repent of your sins today, to place your faith in Christ, to turn away from your sins and to ask for God to save you to give you a new heart. Beg you to pray that. You cannot save yourself. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But this next work called regeneration. Regeneration. John 3, 5 says this. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. Again, in Titus 3.5, Paul writes, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. How is it that someone who is spiritually dead, incapable of fully understanding or believing spiritual things, becomes convicted of the truth of the gospel to the point where they believe? where they want to believe, where they want to turn away from sins and they want what is better. They want God. How is that possible? It's because the Holy Spirit regenerates their hearts. And we know from Ephesians that we are spiritually dead. But God is the one who comes in. He regenerates our hearts. He makes us spiritually alive so that we understand spiritual things, so that we desire spiritual things, so that we believe. Because of the Holy Spirit's regeneration of our hearts, he allows for us to have spiritual life so that the truth of the gospel becomes crystal clear. And we want to believe it. We want to live 
to honor God. I know it's been a long time, but when you think back to our sermon series in Acts and how we talked about the start of the church, and if you remember, the description of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles was described as a rushing wind. It was described as a rushing wind, and that is absolutely intentional by Luke. It is meant to remind readers of the creation. When God the Holy Spirit breathed life into man, when, he, when the wind went into man and his lungs filled up and he started breathing, that was the physical life that the Holy Spirit gives. And in the same way, when the Holy Spirit came in on Pentecost, when that rushing wind came in, what Luke is trying to illustrate to us what the Holy Spirit was trying to illustrate to us through symbolism is the fact that now we are a new man because of Christ. Right? He breathes new life into new men. It's creation again. It's creation again. New spiritual life in spiritually dead people is possible because of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit. And you can have that heart of flesh that's alluded to in the new covenant instead of your heart of stone because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and then rose again. You can have spiritual life because of Jesus and God the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates your heart, makes you spiritually alive so you can be capable of responding to the truth of the gospel. And after you get saved, the work doesn't stop there. The next work is intercession, Romans 8, 26 to 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us, helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Last week, we talked about how Jesus works by praying for his disciples. And this week, we see that it's not just Jesus who prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us, too. And look at how beautiful these trees are. He helps us in our weakness. He knows that we don't know how to pray as we should. Whether it's because we don't have the knowledge, the skill, or the discipline, the Holy Spirit knows that we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. So what does he do? Does he just look to God the Father and says, well, God, I guess that's the best they can do, so we should just take it, right? No. He doesn't do that. He prays on our behalf. He intercedes. He intervenes. He makes, for us, he makes up for us where we're weak, and he prays for us according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit, he goes above and beyond in his prayers for us to God the Father because he doesn't just pray to make up for our lacking in our prayers. He prays according to God's will for us. On the surface, that might not seem like such a big deal. But when you take into consideration the fact that we often only pray for ourselves in a manner that we think is best for us, when we take that into consideration, the Holy Spirit's prayers for us are far better. We don't have the long view in mind. We just look at the short term, which is why we just pray for what we think is best for us. But the Holy Spirit, who knows the mind of God, he intercedes for us according to God's will, 
assuring that he is praying for us in the exact way we need to be prayed for in order to accomplish all of God's purposes in our lives. Because he sees the long view. Because he knows what God is going to do in your life. He prays for you that you can, that, that you can stand up in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, so that you can be refined to be the person that God wants you to be. Yes, he cares for you. Yes, he cares for your suffering. But he prays according to God's will, which is why his prayer for you is so much better than your prayer for yourself. It's so much better than the prayer that we ask other people to pray for us. Because what we are praying for is what we perceive to be our most immediate good. The Holy Spirit, in taking the long view, prays for our eventual good. Because he knows that we need to go through the, the flames at times in order to get what is best. And I know at times that we don't want to go through the flames, right? God, can't I just have the blessings without the suffering? I, you can teach me the things without suffering, can't you? And he, he absolutely could. right? But then this always draws us back to that question. Why didn't he? He could have. He was absolutely capable of doing it, but he did not, so why didn't he? What does he want from me? What does he want me to learn? What does he want me to understand that I cannot understand outside of the grad school of suffering? The only reason why you and I endure, the only reason why we are able to take critical hits in our lives, get up, learn from those hurts, and still praise God. It's because God the Son and God the Holy Spirit pray for us so that we can endure because of the hope of heaven before us. That's the only reason why. That's the only reason why. When Jesus said that he hasn't left his disciples to be orphans when he ascended into heaven, saying that it was necessary for him to leave so that the helper could come, the helper, the Holy Spirit that he promised to come is not a consolation prize. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. The Holy Spirit has come so he might lead us into all truth so that he can be the one who will make us as we should be. And that leads us to the last work of the Holy Spirit that we're going to have time for tonight, sanctification. Sanctification. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.1, says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. As you can see in these two passages, God's end goal in salvation wasn't necessarily just for you to get through the door and stay there. If all God was seeking for you was for you to pray the prayer of repentance and then just move on with your life, church, worship, Christ-likeness doesn't matter. 
Right? If all that it takes is just to get into the door, make sure that you're fine, get your fire insurance or your hell insurance, if that's all that salvation was, why bother with the Christian life? I'd much rather watch the Niners with Jimmy G, or now Nick Mullins, go and take on the rest of the NFL on a Sunday. I don't have to get up at 6 in the morning to make sure that I can get here at 8 a.m. Why would I bother spending my Friday night here at Fellowship when I could go do something else? When I could sleep, when I could do Netflix and chill. Why would I do that? If all that God wanted me to do was just to get through the doors of salvation and just be fine. That's not God's goal. His goal for you is not just initial salvation. It's not just hell insurance. But his goal for you, get this, brothers and sisters, his goal for you is Christ-likeness. For you to be made like Christ. And while that task is, while that task is difficult, God gives you his Holy Spirit so that you can be who God has always meant for you to be. We struggle sometimes because we don't know who we were meant to be. Some of you, you've gone through college. You've got, you received your, you received your bachelor's degree. You thought that you knew where God was leading you because you were interested in the field that you studied. And then you went to grad school. And you suffered through grad school. I don't know anyone who's ever had an easy master's program. Right? Master students, yeah? You suffered through grad school. You've accumulated debts. You accumulated, you've accumulated emotional stress. And then when you finally graduate, and you think that you're finally getting into the field that God is calling you to, you can't even find a job in your field. cry out to God and you say, why? What was it all for? Who am I supposed to be? If I can't be fulfilled in doing these things, who am I? What was the point? What was the purpose? I don't know exactly where God's leading you, but I can tell you this. God never meant for you to find your meaning and your satisfaction in your jobs. He never meant for you to find your meaning and your satisfaction in your financial status. The only way that you can find full meaning, full satisfaction, full fulfillment is in him. You cannot trust in God's gifts to give you something that they were never meant to give you. He never meant for these things to fulfill you. He never meant for these things to satisfy you. He, all, he keeps that hole in your heart so that you understand, so that you get point, so that you ask the right questions. And you realize when you ask God, what was it all for? You realize that my satisfaction wasn't in grad school. My satisfaction wasn't in my field of study. It's not in how successful I am. But my satisfaction and my identity and who I am is found in Christ and Christ alone. And when God gives you his Holy Spirit, he gives you the key 
to becoming who you were always meant to be. There ought to be a godly dissatisfaction, a godly despair in our lives because we know that while we might be doing well right now, we are not yet who we ought to be. We have become too easily satisfied with what we know about God and what that means in our lives. We've been too easy to trade in our worldly success and status as a substitute for who we're meant to be before God in Christ. Yet despite this deficiency, this is where we can praise God for the Holy Spirit. We are deficient. There's no way around that. But because of the Holy Spirit, we are in the process of becoming who we are supposed to be. As Paul is talking about the differences between the law and the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says the end result is this. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So you see, brothers and sisters, the end goal is not just getting in through the door of salvation and just sitting there. It's not just praying the prayer and my life is fine, I can live it however I want. The end goal that God has always intended for you is to be transformed into the same image of the glory of Jesus Christ so that we can finally be who God meant for us to be before him. And as we are progressively transformed into the image of God by the Holy Spirit, we will encounter bumps along the way. I will not hide from that. You will encounter bumps along the way. But God, this is cool, he guarantees his workmanship. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it, faithful to complete it. God guarantees his workmanship. He will finish the job. This isn't just some limited year warranty or first 10,000 miles, whatever comes first. He guarantees his workmanship for eternity. For eternity. He will finish the job. He will make you like Christ. Whether that be through your glorification, whether you pass away or, uh, or your glorification passing away or when you into the Lord, when he returns to bring us home. Though we live in times of uncertainty, this is something we know for sure. We are presently being made into the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And we will be like him in the end because God promised. Therefore, it will come to pass just as he said, for God is faithful to all his promises. This evening, we had a chance to get a brief glimpse of who the Holy Spirit is based on these select texts that describe his person and his work. And while we were not able to cover everything regarding the Holy Spirit tonight, I hope that you were able to get a clearer picture of who he is and what he is doing on your behalf as a result of our study tonight. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, being distinct in person, but one with God the Father and God the Son in nature. We believe that he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
we believe that he regenerates the hearts of all who will believe so that they may respond to the gospel and be saved. We believe that he intercedes on behalf of all who are saved to God the Father according to his will, not ours. We believe that he is also the one who continually sanctifies us continually sanctifies us, guaranteeing God's promised result of glorification. We believe all these things, not because the imagination of man, but because God revealed these things about himself in his word through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we know from your word that you've given us more about who you are. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would no longer take you lightly, that we would no longer consider the work that you do in our lives as distant, impersonal, barely there. But help us remember the truth of how you are working for us how you seek to do the will of God the Father and God the Son, how you dwell within each and every one of us. And you help us to become more like Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to prod at the hearts of those who do not know you, and prod at the hearts of those who are spiritually apathetic so that they can see how good God is in salvation. So they could see how meaningless everything is outside of a life with you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would make yourself known mightily because of your word and what it tells us about you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.